Well, today we jump back into our study of the opening chapters of Genesis, and we come now to the fourth and final view that we will survey in the introduction to this series in Genesis. We started out um, four weeks ago with an introduction to the study of Genesis, laying under our feet a foundation for what we know and why we believe the words of Genesis to be inspired, divinely authoritative, historically factual words of truth. We know that because Christ is risen from the dead, and because He's risen from the dead, He's the Son of God and Lord of all. And because He's the Son of God and Lord of all, every word that He spoke is true and trustworthy, including Genesis 1 and 2. So that was, that was the foundation that we laid under our feet. And then we embarked upon this, this three-part study of four views of creation that can be found within the evangelical church today. Not all these views are created equal. Uh, we first surveyed theistic evolution and we found that it violated our fundamental convictions that were rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Convictions that the words of Genesis are inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and historically factual. The conviction that God created all things out of nothing by the word of His power and His sovereign will. And the conviction that God created Adam and from Adam He created Eve and from Adam and Eve He created all the peoples that populated the face of the earth. Theistic evolution is, I believe, out of bounds for evangelical Christians, and in particular for the covenant members of First Baptist Nixa. Then we moved on to progressive creationism, which believes that God progressively created the heavens and the earth over a great span of time, and that what we have in Genesis 1 is a more figurative rendering of God's work of creation that is still a special creation of all things, but took place over a great extended period of time. It's also known as old earth creationism. Then we moved on the last time that we gathered to six-day creationism or young earth creationism, which takes a very literal approach to Genesis 1 and believes that God created all things that exist in six 24-hour periods. Today we move into a fourth view, a view that is going to be new to probably all of you. But new does not mean wrong, nor does it mean right. But what I invite you to do this morning is to sharpen your minds and open your hearts and to be Bereans this morning. Acts chapter 17, I invite you to be Bereans, to listen eagerly to the Word of God and to consider in your mind whether these things be so. For as long as I can remember, I've been uncomfortable with the creation account of Genesis 1. Not that I'm uncomfortable believing that it is the Word of the living God and inspired and inerrant and authoritative and historically factual, I've been uncomfortable with whether or not I actually understand it. Ever since I began reading books about dinosaurs as a boy, like most eight-year-old boys, I was all into dinosaurs. I knew the names of every one of them. I had books telling me all about them. 
Books which told me that the first dinosaurs appeared on the earth some 225 million years ago in the late Triassic period. Continued throughout the Jurassic period and the Cretaceous period before dying off suddenly some 65 million years ago when a giant asteroid struck the earth plunging the globe into a nuclear winter and destroying the Mesozoic ecosystem. Or so the theory went in my dinosaur books that aligned my shelves. But even as an eight-year-old, I found myself wondering, how could this be when the earth is only 6,000 years old? Or so the theory went in my Sunday school classroom. And what is this about dinosaurs being on Noah's Ark? Well, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance for an eight-year-old boy to process. And the dissonance only grew louder the further I progressed in my education. Every science textbook I ever read was based upon the presupposition that the earth is 13.8 billion years old. Or rather, the the cosmos is 13.8 billion years old. The earth is 4.6 billion years old. And life appeared gradually upon the earth. First came bacteria 3.8 billion years ago. Then came plants some 2.5 billion years ago, and then about 525 million years ago, there was what was known as the Cambrian Explosion, in which all of the major groups of plant and animal life emerged within a relatively short span of time. And then I would always go back, and I would, I would open up Genesis, and I would try to fit these radically divergent worldviews together, and it never worked. Even as a teenager, I was aware that I had to make a choice. And so usually I just avoided the topic altogether, thinking that if I just didn't think about it, the problem would just sort of float away. My life changed radically when I was 21 years old. For the first time in my life, I repented of my sin and I began to follow Christ in earnest. Since that time, now for 13 years, I have been pouring over the Bible, trying, trying to know this God who created the heavens and the earth and trying to know His Son who became man and was crucified for my sins and rose again on the third day. But the more that I've read the Bible, the more convinced I am that one simply cannot ignore Genesis. The foundation of every theological doctrine unpacked in the later books of Scripture is is found in the opening pages of my Bible. I had to deal with the question of the age of the earth and the origin of life. So for years now, I I have vacillated between two views. At times, finding myself leaning towards progressive creationism and an old earth, and at times leaning towards six-day creationism and a new earth or a young earth. But I, but I never felt completely confident or convinced in either position. Finally, last summer, I, I decided I, I could no longer just punt this problem down the road. I needed to dig into the text. I needed to dig into the science as far as I was able. And I needed to come to some conclusions so that when people come to me, as they do, and and ask me 
about the dinosaurs, about the age of the earth, about the origin of life, about the text of Genesis 1 and what it means, I have something to offer besides I'm not really sure. And so I did what I always do when I, when I want to understand more deeply a book of the Bible. I decided to preach on it. Um, because when you're a pastor, how, how else do you have the freedom to spend all day, every day, for weeks on end, digging into one subject and get paid to do it? So that's what I basically did for the entire months of November and December. I remember Mike saying to me, where have you been? I was I've been hiding out in my cave back there, reading books. But in my searching, something, something totally unexpected happened. I stumbled upon a view that I had never before encountered. I heard a well-known and respected pastor mention a book called Genesis Unbound by a Dr. John Salehammer. And then this pastor briefly described the book in a way that intrigued me, and it captured my attention. So I bought the book, and I read it cover to cover, and all I can say is it just totally blew me away. I found Salehammer's argument, which he calls historical creationism, but which if I were writing the book, I would have called covenantal creationism, to be convincing, compelling, and at many points convicting. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I present this fourth and final view in this, this overview introduction to the doctrine of creation in Genesis. What I'm going to do is present historical creationism from Salehammer's point of view, but I'm going to do so with a caveat. I, I have held to this view, if I can say that I hold to it, for all of about three months. And I admit that I could be wrong. Salehammer could be wrong. You could come to me five years from now and find me very comfortably in the six-day creationism perspective. I don't know. But what I do this morning is invite you to listen to the arguments that he presents, consider them, and then search the scriptures for yourself to see whether these things be so. The view is called Historical Creationism, and the arguments are laid out in a book entitled Genesis Unbound. It's by Dr. John Salehammer. Uh, it's also presented in his volume on Genesis in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. So it's been out there for a number of years. It was first published 20 years ago in 1996. The second edition was taught in 2011, but as Salehammer himself would tell you, the view can be found back in, in ancient um, rabbinical commentaries on Genesis dating back to prior to the time of Christ. That's why he calls it historic creationism. Dr. Salehammer received his PhD in Semitic languages from UCLA. He's taught at Bethel Seminary, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and most recently, Southeastern Seminary and Golden Gate Seminary, both of which are seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, Dr. Salehammer knows the Hebrew language inside and out. He knows the Hebrew culture, and he is thoroughly evangelical and even Baptist in his doctrinal convictions. This guy didn't just come out of nowhere and write this book. He's well-trained, 
And he has the affirmation of people that we hold in high regard. Sailhammer calls his view historical creationism because he believes it can be traced back to the ancient Hebrews and the way that they understood Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 before the influence of Greek philosophy and Greek cosmology and modern science and modern English translations crept in. So what is historical creationism? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a summary from Sailhammer himself, and I'm going to let him summarize his own view in his own words. Quote, I maintain that the narratives of Genesis 1 and 2 are to be understood as both literal and historical. They recount two great acts of God. In the first great act, God created the universe we see around us today, consisting of the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the plants and animals that inhabit or formerly inhabited the earth. The biblical record of that creation is recounted in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Since the Hebrew word translated beginning refers to an indefinite period of time, we cannot say for certain when God created the world or how long he took to create it. This period could have spanned as much as several billion years, or it could have been much less. The text simply does not tell us how long. It tells us only that God did it during the beginning of the universe's history. The second act of God recounted in Genesis 1 and 2 deals with a much more limited scope and a much more limited period of time. Beginning with Genesis 1-2, the biblical narrative recounts God's preparation of a land for the man and the woman he was to create. That land was the same land later promised to Abraham and his descendants. It was that land which God gave to Israel after their exodus from Egypt. It was that land to which Joshua led the Israelites after their time of wandering in the wilderness. According to Genesis 1, God prepared that land within a period of a six-day work week. On the sixth day of that week, God created human beings. God then rested on the seventh day. The second chapter of Genesis provides a closer look at God's creation of the first human beings. We are told that God created them from the ground and put them in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey God, not merely to work the garden and take care of it. The boundaries of that garden are the same as those of the promised land. Thus, the events of these chapters foreshadow the events of the remainder of the Pentateuch. God creates a people, and then he puts them into a land that he has prepared for them, and he calls them to worship and obey him and receive his blessing. End quote. In other words, let me summarize the summary for you. Sailhammer contends that Genesis 1-1 describes the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in a period of indeterminate length known as the beginning. And then Genesis 1-2 to 2-3, the seven days, are the preparation of the land. Not the whole earth, not the whole globe, but the Garden of Eden which he equates to the promised land. A land for his people whom he created on the sixth day to dwell. Sailhammer's view rests upon four pillars that I'm going to try to establish this morning. I'll let you know that as of right now, okay, come check back with me in five years. As of right now, I find myself pretty comfortable in this view. I think that it makes the, 
the best sense out of the context, the, and we'll talk about later, the concentric context of Genesis 1. Not only, not only Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 1 through 11, all of Genesis, all of the Pentateuch, and all of the scriptures together. From start to finish, the Bible deals with people covenantally. And I think this is a covenantal view of creation. I hope that becomes clear as we go on this morning. So, Historical creationism rests, you can kind of think of it as a a theory resting upon four pillars, all right? And I'm going to try to establish those four pillars for you. I just ask you to consider them, see if they make sense. Pillar number one concerns the understanding of the very first word of the Hebrew Bible, Bereshith. Bereshith is the Hebrew word that translates the first three words of the English Bible in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 states that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right from the start, Moses, the author of Genesis, makes it plain that God created the heavens and the earth in this period of time known as the beginning, whatever that is. But what does he mean by the beginning? Does does Genesis 1.1, look at the text of Genesis 1 with me. Does Genesis 1-1 belong with God's activities on day one, verses 2 to 5? In other words, does God create some primordial chaos and then begin, that's, that's formless and void, and then begin to form that progressively throughout the, the six days? Or, okay, that's... That's the way most people have viewed traditionally in the Western church. This way most people have viewed Genesis 1.1. God spoke a chaos into existence, and then he formed it. Or, other people see Genesis 1.1 as kind of a summary statement of all that follows, kind of like a title for the creation account. In other words, it would be like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then you might put in, and it went, it went like this. Okay? And then the rest of it fills that in. Or, does Moses mean something else entirely? Well, what does the text say? The Hebrew term for beginning, it's the word reshit, has a very specific meaning in Scripture. It's not hard, just compare it and, and look at the other places that it occurs in the Bible. It has a very specific meaning. And that meaning always, 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 without exception, refers to an extended yet indeterminate duration of time and never refers to a specific moment of time. So if you're, I speak with my hands, right? So it refers to this, not this, okay? An extended period of time that runs prior to some significant set of events, not to a moment in time. The term, according to Salehammer, does not refer to a point in time, but to a period or duration of time which falls before a significant period of events. Let me give you three examples in the Bible that, that bear this out. Okay? They'll be up here on the screen behind me. You don't feel like you have to flip everywhere in the Bible. In Job 8-7, Job's friend Bildad, who's not much of a friend as it turns out, is speaking to Job and he's encouraging him to repent for his sin, which is so obviously, to build that anyway, the cause of Job's misery. And he says this, 
If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And watch the last phrase. And your beginning, your reshit, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Well, think about this. To what does that beginning refer? Well, it doesn't refer to a moment in time. It refers to a span of Job's life, decades during which Job was accumulating great prosperity. The beginning of his life, meaning that span of your life before Satan intervened and wrecked everything, or from Bildad's perspective, before you sinned and God brought judgment upon you. That was the beginning. Or, what about Jeremiah 28.1? Jeremiah writes, in that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth year of the fourth, no, sorry, in the fifth month of the fourth year of that reign, okay, so the beginning of the reign of Jeremiah, or Zedekiah, rather, according to Jeremiah, takes place in the fifth month of the fourth year before something is about to happen. So the beginning, the reshit of Zedekiah's reign was, in Jeremiah's view, four years and five months long. It wasn't like the moment of his coronation. It was a beginning span of time. Or, closer to the context, what about Genesis 10.10? which is especially important because it was also written by Moses and occurs in the very near context to the verse in question. Moses writes this, Genesis 10.10, The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. That was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. Let me ask you this question. How long did it take Nimrod to build those four cities? Did he, did he just build it like that and there were cities? Or, because they had much longer time, you know, lifespans back then, what was it an extended period of time during which Nimrod built up these four cities? Well, clearly it was an extended period of time of considerable duration. The point is that in the beginning, in Genesis 1-1, does not mean an instantaneous moment of time during which God spoke some great cosmic chaos into existence, but rather it refers to a time frame during which God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and, and formed them into what we see today. It was a period of indeterminate duration during which God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and it's called the beginning because it's not the main event of the text. The main event of the text is what starts at Genesis 1-2 as we'll see in just a moment. In the beginning, God created everything that exists, and that's all Moses says about it. The main point of Genesis 1 is the six days during which God prepared the land for his covenant people, Adam, Eve, and all their descendants. Salehammer writes that other Hebrew terms were available to Moses to denote that moment in time. Rishonah, Tekelah, those, those words, if it had been his intention to speak of a moment in time, he could have used either one of those words and we would know what he means. Ah, he means an instantaneous moment in time. But he didn't. He used the word reshit, 
which only ever refers to a span of time of indeterminate length, which means that all Moses intended to convey in Genesis 1-1 was that during this period of indeterminate length, which could have been thousands of years or millions of years or billions of years, we'll leave it to other people to tell us how long that is, all Moses says is during this period called the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things that exist, all galaxies, all nebula, all stars, all planets were created by the will and the word of God ex nihilo out of nothing, but the universe was not created in an instant, a fully formed cosmos in a state of maturity and motion, but rather created and brought about during this period of indeterminate length known as the beginning. So says Salehammer. In fact, Moses says nothing about the timing or process which God used to create all things so that having established God as creator of all things that exist, he could very quickly turn our attention to the God of the covenant who very painstakingly prepares a land for his covenant people whom he will create on the sixth day. So that's pillar number one. The very first word of Genesis 1-1 doesn't mean what you think it means. It means a period of indeterminate length that precipitates a significant series of events. Number two, the second pillar of historical creationism regards the understanding of the Hebrew word Eretz. You remember last week, you're probably wondering why I'm taking you into so much Hebrew. You remember last week when I said that our interpretation is only as good as our translation, right? I mean... We don't speak Hebrew. I don't. Maybe you do. We have an English Bible that translates the Hebrew text of Genesis 1. Well, what if it wasn't translated as accurately in places as it could have been? That's why we have people. That's why God calls Hebrew scholars to benefit the church to interpret it or translate it better so that we can interpret it more rightly. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe not. Anyway, the second pillar of historical creationism regards the understanding of the Hebrew word Eretz. Eretz is the word that's translated earth in Genesis 1, uh, throughout much of Genesis 1. According to Salehammer, when modern readers of the Bible see the term Eretz, translated earth, we tend to think, I wonder if this is true of you, you tend to think of the globe, right? The whole spherical earth. That's what I do. But is that the way the ancient Hebrews, who were the very first audience of the book of Genesis, of which Moses was a part, is that the way they would have understood the word? Did they have the conception of the earth as a a giant sphere orbiting around the sun? Well, no, probably not. To them, the word Eretz referred to a land, a land on on which they stood. They could put their feet on it. When they, when they scanned around, they could see it within the horizons. It was a specific land. It was a geographical land. Sometimes it was a political land. But it was, it was a land that you could touch and feel and see and on which you dwelt. The term Eretz usually refers to a specific stretch of land in a local geographical or political sense. There are times when it has a more global sense, but those are the exception rather than the rule. Furthermore, the term Eretz 
has a more specialized sense in the books of Moses known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It has a more specialized sense. It doesn't refer to any land. It refers to the land. Which land? The promised land. In the Pentateuch, Eretz usually refers to that land which was promised to Abraham. There are a few exceptions, a few, but to Moses and the ancient Hebrews, Eretz usually meant the promised land, the covenant land. And Sailhammer insists that this is the way it should be understood in Genesis 1. The concern of the author, Moses, from Genesis 1-2 on is not the entirety of the globe, but the special preparation by God of a promised land in which he would place the first man and the first woman as his covenant people. It's a covenant land for his covenant people. Now he lists four reasons for understanding Eretz this way. You with me? Mind sharp, hearts open. All right. Maribeth came up to me and said this this morning and said, I wonder, I wonder if the congregation's gonna sort of be like elementary school kids where as soon as it starts snowing, nothing can be learned, right? I said, Lord, I hope not. Because <laughs> I got something I I need your mind, I need your attention. All right, four reasons for understanding Eretz in Genesis 1 in a more localized sense. Okay? Here's number one. The close connection between the first two chapters of Genesis supports this this localized, specific view of the land. Now, traditionally, interpreters have viewed Genesis 1 as God's creation of of the earth, right? The whole spherical globe. And Genesis 2 as God's preparation of the Garden of Eden, the specific covenant land. Uh, Sailhammer rejects that, and he argues that the, the two narratives, Genesis 1 and 2, actually describe the same events from two different perspectives, one from God's perspective and the other one from Adam's perspective. At least that's what Genesis 2-4 indicates. Why else would Moses start over again, like he does in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then he, he moves forward? Why in Genesis 2-4 would he do the same thing? These are the generations, these are the beginnings of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Moses is starting over, and he's going to tell the same story from a different perspective. Second reason, the biblical location of the land with respect to the city of Babylon in the east indicates that throughout these narratives, the author has in mind the promised land. There's direction and if, in Genesis 1 to 11, and if you just fly through it too fast, you'll miss it. But it means something. In Genesis 11, 1, we're told that the whole earth, if that's the way it should be translated, the whole Eretz, had one language and the same words. Right? This is the beginning of the Tower of Babel story. The whole Eretz had one language and all the same words. But is earth the right translation? Does Moses intend to to tell us at that point that the whole earth, the the entire globe, had one language and all the same words? Well, the very next verse says, they, the antecedent to that is the whole earth, they moved eastward and they found a valley in the land of Shinar, think Babylon, and they dwelt there. Okay, So evidently, The they in verse 1, the whole Eretz, 
who had one language and the same words, they migrated eastward from the west. So automatically we know that we're not talking about the entire globe, we're talking about a localized place, a land, a land specifically west of Babylon, which is the same land where God prepared a garden from which God cast out Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.24, he cast them out and and he placed cherubim to guard the way at the eastern gate, to the east. So the, Adam and Eve went, were cast out to the east, and the entrance to the Garden of Eden faced that way. So it was west. They went out to the east. Genesis 4.16, when Cain is cast away from the presence of the Lord, which direction does he go? He goes east. There's this flow in Genesis 1. East is away from the presence of the Lord, away from the land of the Lord. West is back towards Eden. So the land, the Eretz, is in the west of Babylon, which is in the east. Third, the central theme of the Pentateuch is the Sinai covenant and God's gift of the land to Israel. What's the central concern of the first five books, the books of Moses? Are they concerned with the whole globe in general? Do they talk a whole lot about what's going on over here in North America? No, they're concerned with a specific land. They're concerned with the covenant people in the covenant land. Any reader of the books of Moses will agree that the focus is on that land which was promised to the patriarchs, the land from which Israel was exiled in Egypt, the land to which God promised to bring them back, the land that they were overlooking when they received the book of Genesis. The people of Israel are on, are on the plains of Moab overlooking the Jordan River and, and the, the land is beyond it to the west when they get the book of Genesis. What, what kind of land do you think is on their mind when they get this book? That one. The land to which we're going, the land promised to our forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The focus of the land does not begin with Genesis 12 and Abraham. It begins with Genesis 1 and Adam. And number four, later biblical interpretation clearly saw the promised land as the focus of the creation account. This this appears to be the way the prophets understood Genesis 1. For instance, Jeremiah 27.5, we read the Lord's words in Jeremiah's mouth. I made the land. I made Haaretz. I made mankind and the animals upon the land with my great and powerful outstretched hand, and I will give it to whomever I please. I made the land. I made man. I made the animals. It's mine, and I'm going to give it to whomever I please. Who does he give it to? Next verse tells us, I'm going to give it to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Well, what land did God give Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? Did he give him the whole earth, the, the globe? He gave him the promised land as an act of judgment upon his covenant people. You can read the same thing in Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2. So according to the prophets, and according to the usage of the word Eretz, from Genesis 1-2 on, the focus of the narrative is on the preparation of a specific land, namely the promised land, Eden, 
The land that was promised and given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel. But Genesis 1-1 is different. It belongs in a separate category. In Genesis 1-1, Eretz is to be understood in a globalized, universal sense. Why? Well, it's used and occurs in a special Hebrew figure of speech known as a merism. Okay? Learn what merism is. You can impress your friends at parties this afternoon. Merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. What's a merism? A merism is a figure of speech that combines two opposing, opposite, extreme ideas in order to express a single idea of everything that's encompassed in between. Okay? Let me give you an example. Psalm 139. David is praying and he he says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Now, what's David saying there? What's the extent of God's knowledge? Is David just saying, you know when I go to sleep and you know when I wake up? Or is he saying, you know when I go to sleep, you know when I wake up, and you know everything in between. You know it all. Your knowledge is universal. And he uses these two extremes to express that single idea. The same thing's going on in Genesis 1-1. Did you know that the Hebrew language does not have a word for cosmos or universe? If you were to express the great out there, outer space... You can't do it in Hebrew in one word. You know how you do it? You use a merism. You say the heavens and the earth. You take these two opposite extremes and you put them together in order to to give the idea of the totality of the whole. On, On their own, those two words have more localized meanings. They're smaller. Shemaim, heavens. In Genesis 1.20, it refers to that place where the birds fly. Not the place of the stars, the place where the birds fly. And Eretz refers to a land between the horizons that I can see, touch, sow, feel. But you put them together, and suddenly we have cosmic location. Therefore, Genesis 1.1, by the way, let me give you a few more verses. Isaiah 44.24, Jeremiah 10.16, Psalm 103.19. You say, Tim, you're going too fast. That's okay because the manuscript's going to be on the website tomorrow. Don't try to write all this stuff down. You'll give yourself a seizure. Genesis 1.1, therefore, concerns the creation of the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth, while Genesis 1.2 onward concerns the specific location, the Eretz, the land, the promised land. Third pillar. The third pillar of the historical creationist argument is the translation and understanding of the Hebrew phrase tohu wabohu. It's kind of fun to say. But it's the Hebrew phrase that's translated in my Bible without form and void. Tohu wabohu. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now the English translation, King James, formless and void, that, that goes all the way back to William Tyndale 500 years ago. It was retained in the King James Version and it has influenced every English translation since, including mine. 
But the interpretation behind that translation goes way back to what is known as the Septuagint. I'm going to give you a little history lesson just for a second. Bear with me because it's important. All right? A couple of centuries before the coming of Christ, the world was speaking Greek. Alexander the Great had conquered the whole known world. He had Hellenized the world, and everybody spoke Greek. And so in Alexandria, this group of 70 Hebrew scholars who also spoke Greek and were themselves Greek in their culture, they took it upon themselves to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into a Greek Old Testament, and that translation is known as the Septuagint, and it became the Bible for the early church and the church moving forward until it was translated into Latin by Jerome in the 5th century. Well, these Greek-speaking Hebrews had been influenced by Greek philosophy very heavily. They'd been influenced by Greek cosmology, which, which held that Matter is eternal, and it it existed forever in some formless and void chaos before it was formed into its present state. Now, they believed the Genesis account. They knew that matter is not eternal. God is eternal. God, God spoke matter into existence by the word of his power out of nothing. And so what they did was they injected into their translation a two-step process. First, God created a formless and void chaos. Then he formed it into the earth that we know today. The problem is, is that formless and void is not what tohu wabohu means. Rather, the Hebrew expression, as it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, means uninhabitable wasteland, uninhabitable wilderness, a deserted wasteland that cannot be inhabited by humans. It's not fit for human habitation. The same words, the same phrase is used to describe the land of Israel after the invasion of Babylon. Which is kind of interesting if you think of the symmetry of it. God took this uninhabited wasteland. He formed it and gave it to his covenant people. They rebel against him, so he casts them out. He brings them out of the land of Egypt. He places them back in it. They rebel against him, and so he casts them out. And then he lets it go into a, once again into this uninhabitable wasteland. Look at the way Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah 4.23. I looked on the earth. This is after the invasion of Babylon. So the Babylonian troops have swept through. They have just destroyed everything. They've knocked down every city. They've burned every field. They've slaughtered every family. I mean, it's just wreckage everywhere that you look. And Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Tohu wabohu. Now what does he mean by that? What's what's Jeremiah looking at? Is, Is he looking at a swirling mass of... Chaos? Or is he looking at a land that has been destroyed? An uninhabitable wasteland. I looked to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold the fruitful land was a desert and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So after the invasion of Babylon and the burning aftermath of the destruction of Babylon's armies, when the people of Israel were were taken away into exile, the land was not some swirling primordial chaos the way we might 
believe without form and void means. It was an uninhabitable wilderness. There were no crops to eat. There were no arable fields to sow. There were no cities in which to dwell. You couldn't live there. Well, likewise, what Genesis 1-2 is conveying is not that the earth was a formless and void chaos, but, but the land, specifically Eden, was an uninhabitable environment for his covenant people to dwell. It wasn't good for mankind. It needed preparation. Sailhammer writes, quote, Once that occurred, the land would no longer be a wilderness devoid of human life. It could be pronounced good for the man and the woman. In fact, you might say it would become a regular garden of Eden. Which brings us to the fourth pillar of historical creationism. Still with me? You guys are the best. Take back everything I said about you. The fourth pillar of historical creationism deals with the central role of the Garden of Eden in the creation narrative and its identification with the promised land. Simply put, Sailhammer says the Garden of Eden is the land promised to Abraham. Three points are of critical importance to our understanding of the, the role of the Garden of Eden in the opening chapters of Genesis. Here's number one, the location of the garden as described in Genesis 2, 10 to 14, allows us to identify Eden, which is Hebrew for delight, the land of delight, with the promised land. First of all, I want to point something out. Look at, look at Genesis 2, 8. In Genesis 2, 8, the text does not say the garden of Eden. It says the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. In other words, Eden is the name of a larger land of which the garden of the Lord is a smaller part in the eastern portion of that land. You see that? It's the garden in Eden. Well, then Genesis 2, 10 to 14 tells us the boundaries of Eden. It tells us that a river flowed out of Eden which divided and became four rivers. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now we know what two of those rivers are. We know what the Tigris and the Euphrates are. They're, they're still there today. They formed the fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, the northern extent of this land of Eden. The other two are unfamiliar to us, but there is a clue that helps us to identify it. Regarding the Gihon, the text says, verse 13, that it is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. You see that? It flowed around the whole land of Cush. What's the land of Cush? What's Ethiopia? It's the land that borders Egypt, the land south of Egypt. So the river then that borders Cush is most likely the Nile River, the river of Egypt, which means that the Garden of Eden evidently had a southern border at the river of Egypt and a northern border at the Tigris and the Euphrates. Huh. What, what other biblically and historically significant land had a southern border at the river of Egypt and a northern border at the Tigris and Euphrates River? The land promised to Abraham. Look at Genesis fifteen eighteen. Or look at it on the screen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. 
Evidently, then, the Garden of Eden is identical to the land of promise. Second, the purpose of the garden identifies it as the first tabernacle or temple. God prepared the garden as the place where Adam and Eve, his first covenant family, as we'll get to in just a few weeks, he prepared it as a place where they could dwell in his midst and enjoy his fellowship as their creator and their father. That the Garden of Eden is intended to be viewed as, as the first temple of the Lord and Adam is to be viewed as its first priest is clear from the rest of Scripture. We actually already covered this when we covered Revelation 21 and 22. Think through this with me. Genesis 2.15, God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate, Hebrew word abad, and to keep, Hebrew word shamar, it. Now those two words, abad and shamar, cultivate and keep, and their related nouns are, are, are also used of the priests who serve the temple. Numbers 3, 8 and 18, 1 Chronicles 23, Ezekiel 44. In other words, when the priesthood was established, they were charged to cultivate and keep the temple. Adam is therefore presented in Genesis 2 as the archetypal priest of the archetypal temple, which is the Garden of Eden. When Adam failed in his responsibility to guard and keep the temple and he was expelled from the garden, God placed two cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to guard the way back into the presence of the Lord and the Tree of Life, Genesis 3.24. Interestingly, when we turn to 1 Kings chapter 6 and Solomon builds his temple, do you know what he places in the Holy of Holies to guard the way into the presence of God? He places two enormous cherubim in statue form to guard the entrance to the ark of the Lord and the glory of God in the Holy of Holies, 1 Kings 6, 23-30. Where do you think he got the idea of that? Third, the temple, as you read about it in 1 Kings chapter 6, was covered with carvings. The carvings were of palm branches and fruit trees. In fact, if you were to walk in, you would feel as if you were entering a cultivated garden. Why do you think Solomon did that? Number four, the entrance to Eden was from the east, according to Genesis 3.24. Why do you think God stipulated that the tabernacle and the temple was to face east? I think it's because the Garden of Eden is the first temple and Adam its first priest. In Genesis 1 and 2, God prepared the Garden of Eden as a tabernacle in which His covenant people would worship and obey the Lord and enjoy the glory of His presence. And as we saw in Revelation 21 and 22, that's exactly the way the new creation is described also. So the location of the garden and the purpose of the garden point us to this identification of, the, of Eden with the promised land. But finally, the covenant in the garden points us in that direction as well. As we'll see in a few weeks, when God created Adam and, and Eve, He entered into a covenant with Adam and in Adam, a covenant with all humanity called the covenant of creation. And in this covenant, God pr promised blessing and life and continued access to God's presence in the garden if Adam would just trust and obey God's commands. But he also threatened death and cursing and expulsion from the garden 
and from God's presence if Adam turned away from God in unbelief and sin. And you know what happened next. Let me ask you a question. Is that not the very same covenant which God made with Israel when He brought them into the land? You can almost hear God's covenant with Adam in Moses' words to Israel before they're ready to enter the land. Let me, let me read it to you and, and put these two side by side. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil, just like I've set before you a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and you shall multiply. You shall be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, you can be like God. I declare to you today that you shall surely die. Does that sound familiar? You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. The Sinai covenant is a reflection of the covenant of creation. Just like Adam, Israel was to love, trust, and obey God, and they would live in the land and they would enjoy God's abundant blessings. And just like Adam, Israel failed, turning in unbelief and sin, and they were cursed and they were driven out of the land, just like Adam, east to Babylon. It would take the last Adam to redeem fallen humanity and bring them back to Eden once again. We're going through a catechism with our kids. And the, the Baptist catechism, actually, that we're teaching, Abby. There's question number four says, I thought about having you come up here. And, I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's thinking, oh, Dad, please, no. The fourth question says, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? And the answer is, we know that the Bible is the Word of God by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. But only the Spirit of God can make us willing and able to submit to the Bible as the Word of God. The unity of its parts. This book is perfectly symmetrical. It's why I love it so much. It's logical. It's like God's a type B personality. Like me. I know he created beautiful worlds, so he's also type A like Ashley. But it just makes sense. And this covenantal creation view starts with the covenant and ends with the covenant, and it just makes sense. So to summarize, historical creationism holds that Genesis 1-1 simply states that God created the heavens and the earth, the entire cosmos, in the beginning. And doesn't tell us anything about the timing or the process which God used in creation. Because it's not the point. The point starts at Genesis 1-2 and runs to 2-3 where in six 24-hour periods, God prepared the Garden of Eden, which equates to the Promised Land. And He formed it into a paradise suitable for His covenant people whom He created on the sixth day. 
Its interpretation is supported by four main points. Number one, the Hebrew term reshit, beginning, always refers to a period of indeterminate, extended period of indeterminate duration and never refers to a moment, specific moment in time. Number two, in the Pentateuch, the Hebrew term Eretz, land, most often has a localized sense referring specifically to the land promised to Abraham. Number three, the Hebrew phrase tohu wabohu does not mean formless and void, a primordial chaos, but it means an uninhabitable wasteland, unsuitable for the covenant people to dwell in. And number four, the location, purpose, and covenant of the Garden of Eden reveal that it is to be identified with the promised land promised to Abraham and given to Israel. Adam, not Abraham, was the first person to dwell in Zion, the beautiful land. But he won't be the last. I believe historical creationism makes better sense of Genesis 1 within those concentric circles of Genesis 1 to 11, and the Pentateuch as a whole, and the Scriptures as a whole, with its focus upon the covenant people, the covenant land, and the covenant itself. The entire Bible, The entire Bible is the story of a covenant God whose will it is to bring a covenant people into a covenant land to enjoy His covenant blessings and His fellowship forever. Next week, Lord willing, we will enter into the text of Genesis 1 and we will walk through those seven days of creation and preparation to see how the Lord God formed this covenant land and filled it with all good things for His people to enjoy and finally, as the pinnacle of His creation, reaching down into the dust of the earth and forming a man and breathing into it His his own breath of life and making a man and a woman in His very own image.